This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. We are live for the Saturday Social with Flora Cooper, who is going to be joined by Mary Myatt. This show, like every other show on Teachers Talk Radio, is sponsored by Witherslack Group and Oxford University Press. In a second, I'm going to hand over to Flora. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Saturday Social. Rise and shine, everyone. We are here. Thank you, Tom, for holding the fort down. We have Mary Myatt in today, the incredible Mary Myatt, to talk about the curriculum um, all morning with us. And it is wonderful to have you here, Mary. Hello. How are you? Hello, Flora <laughs> and colleagues. Well, it's lovely to be here. Uh, thank you so much for inviting oh, me. Oh, it's brilliant, brilliant to have you. I would not have anyone else on talking about the curriculum because you are to me. I was looking, do you know, I was looking through all the books that I have in my um, in my bookshelf, all written by you, and you have got me. And I, I'm not just saying this. I'm saying this because this is absolutely the honest truth. You have got me through my headship. All your books have been sort of these sort of pinnacle books that I've read and taken off the shelf at different times. And you have gotten me through so much during my headship. And I cannot thank you enough. So thank you. <laughs> oh, well, that's really, really kind of you to say, Flora. I mean, I really just write in order to clarify my own thinking. Um, I have to say it's very lonely. And so when uh, one or two people say they find it helpful, you know, that means a lot. And so it means that I continue to do it. But I really appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. no. Well, thank you, because, you know, it, it's absolutely, absolutely true. So we're going to talk about the curriculum. I haven't even introduced you because you don't actually need an introduction, because I think when we talk about schools, we talk about um, school development, we talk about school curriculum, um, we talk about the whole thing about, you know, just not having fear in the classroom and having having this expectation of this high challenge, low threat, all of this, all of these ideas and all of these, you know, these sort of cornerstones that schools should be using that you write about, you know, it all comes from from your books and all comes from your your talks and everything that you you give to education. So let's go into the curriculum because we're going to we're going to have a lot to talk about. But at the moment, obviously, I know a lot of schools are focused on their curriculums. It's an offset priority. Everybody's thinking about intent, implementation, impact to the three eyes. So what are your thoughts on the new Ofsted framework and the way that we're looking at the curriculum? Um, yeah, I have a number of thoughts on it. Um, so just by general way of background, it does make me slightly annoyed that in some quarters people have been talking about the curriculum as though it's a new thing, as though schools haven't been doing anything on the curriculum like forever, yeah. which is ridiculous. Um, but in terms of the quality of education judgment in this latest framework, I think it is good, solid stuff. And I don't believe in, you know, chasing an inspection agenda, because I think if schools are doing the right thing, it's good to be mindful of it. But it's not about we're doing this because. Um, 
And but I also think that the um, three categories that they talk about uh, framing the curriculum within are actually really useful. So um, the intent, implementation, impact. And I think they're helpful lenses through which to um, check whether we are, you know, broadly in the right space or not. They're not a three line whip, but I do think that they are pretty helpful. So I, I do tend to use them. Okay. So I know um, I've seen a lot of schools doing it quite differently, sort of thinking about intent, thinking about implementation and thinking about impact. And a lot of schools doing things quite differently in regards to the intent. When we talk about intent, what what do you think is meant? What is supposed to be meant by the idea of intent? So uh, I look at this and frame it in two ways. So the first is the headline intention of what the curriculum is about in this school um, and I think it's helpful to link it to the school's values and vision for the pupils within those settings and so that's primary secondary special alternative provision or whatever um, and so if we're saying we want every child to succeed uh, then we need to make sure that the way we talk about the curriculum um, in general terms in terms of the school offer is that it is uh, talking in ambitious terms for every child uh, to be able to grapple with some of the really big ideas and do something with them. Um, a second sort of uh, slight reframing of that um, that I talk to schools about is thinking about in general, what is it that some of our children in our settings um, uh, are missing in, in the wider community? It's not a deficit model, but it's just thinking, are there some elements of the curriculum uh, where we know they're not getting as much exposure to this that we might include some elements of. So um, there are two in particular I think are important. If we know that um, a lot of our children um, are coming to school with low levels of oracy and literacy, and we know that's a thing, um, particularly, you know, after the last couple of years, and this isn't just an issue from um, for children from lower poorer backgrounds. Uh, I think it's across the sector. So if we've identified that, then it seems to me it's worthwhile making a claim that we are going to have um, really structured, carefully thought through elements of oracy uh, within our whole curriculum provision. It's not just an add-on. This is something that is thought about carefully. Um, and it's not necessarily additional work. It's just about a lens through which we make sure every child is exposed to high quality talk and has the opportunities to talk because everything flows from that, in my view. Um, the second aspect to that in terms of what might be missing um, in some communities is exposure to communities and people who are different from them. And so that could be um, because they're in a remote part of the country and so they don't get the chance to mix the children who are different from them. Or sometimes we find that children are coming to school with um, attitudes that are slightly negative to um, people from different backgrounds. And so in that case, just thinking generally, what are some of the uh, literature, some of the um, materials we're using already that can just amplify children's experiences? And there's one in program I just think is absolutely brilliant. I always mention when I'm talking about this in terms of the general intent is Lifter. L-Y-F-T-A, and that's Serda Ferret's work. And that is an amazing platform with world-class documentaries of people and communities and individuals from around the world. It's utterly gripping and draws 
um, children, but also adults into it. So this very light touch way of including things that might be um, uh, an opportunity to amplify children's experiences. So I just want to emphasize that's not a deficit model. It's just thinking, what can we offer in this school, this setting um, that would expose children to those wider narratives? Um, and so that's at the general um, school level. When it comes to the intent of the individual subjects, again, I think there are two elements. Um, so the first is the way that we talk about the subjects. And um, quite often if I'm talking to people about the intent for the subject in the school, that, that they tend to have open up a document to tell me, well, uh, that means it's not really being lived out. If you've got to open an Excel or Word doc, you know, to talk about it, I think it needs to be at people's fingertips. Um, I don't think it needs to be heavy duty. So, um, for instance, uh, so one of the things I do is I provide uh, a number of quotes for each of the individual national curriculum subjects just as a point for debate. So if I'm teaching art and design uh, or leading on art and design in whatever context, would a quote, for instance, from Don Miguel Reith, every human is an artist, how does that resonate with do I agree with that or or, or do I disagree with it? In which case, why do I think art and design are important? So what we're getting at here is what's the unique contribution that an individual subject makes to the cognitive and um, social and effective uh, development of any child? Um, what would they be missing out on if they came to school and we weren't offering them any art and design? And then what's absolutely magical about it? So I have these series of quotes um, just as things for debate so that people can say off the you know off their fingertips this is um this is why we're doing this and um another really good starting point for that are the um the uh, important statements at the beginning of the national curriculum documents they're really really generous hearted ambitious for all all children um and so that's the headline for the intent for the individual subjects and then the second strand of the intent is actually what are we intending to teach them so those are the headlines of the programs of study so um that's a rather extended uh, <laughs> uh summary of the, the way that i think about intent yeah, but I love how you said the fact that you shouldn't have to open a document to tell me what your subject's about, because actually that that is it is is you go into schools where the subject is so complicated, it becomes so complicated that actually no one really truly understands what they're talking about. Um, and I love I love that about everything that you write about and everything you talk about, Mary, is how you simplify everything. But you you somehow you simplify it in such such terms that it 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 uncomplicates everything and and it makes so much sense. Um, and one of the things that I know that you talk about is this this thing of you know just doing things well, simplifying simplifying the curriculum even but doing things really, really well. And I know this is still a massive problem in school is the fact that people are trying to get every single subject taught. They're trying to cram in everything into their week. They're trying to get their timetables up and running and a lot of things slip. And we know this happens in school. We know that the things that slip are things like art and design or RE or history or geography or music. And these are often, you know, these are the subjects that our children need um, you know, to help inspire creativity and things. So, so what what can we say to schools? What advice do you give to schools in order to actually say, you know, we've got to teach all these things, but actually, how should schools approach it? 
Yeah, so I reframe it and I, I, I uh, regard it as being children's entitlement. So children are entitled to a broad and balanced curriculum. And in maintained schools, that's the national curriculum for schools that aren't maintained, those within an academy. Uh, what they provide for children needs to be at least as ambitious as the national curriculum. And, you know, in, in fact, most, most schools are following the national curriculum. So this is an entitlement for children to the end of uh, Key Stage 3. Um, for me, this is a leadership issue. It's not down to individual teachers uh, to make this work uh, on their own. They do need to have some input, um, but they should be guided and indeed directed uh, by someone on the senior leadership team who is making sure that children are getting their full entitlement. And there are lots of ways to timetable. Um, so, for instance, um, Ben Erskine of the um, Fullbridge Academy in Peterborough, um, they are very intentional, very, very um, uh, precise in terms of what children are entitled to. And one of the things I noticed when I visited the school before lockdown, um, I noticed that some of the pupils were having mathematics in the afternoon. And I said, oh, so what's your what's your rationale for that? And he said, well, it's partly timetabling because we have to get art and design and science and all the other things in. And to do that properly, we sometimes that they're uh, doing those in the morning. But also, and I thought this was really interesting, he said, uh, we don't want children going away with the idea that some subjects are more important than others. And so we're signaling to our children that all subjects are important and they get taught at different times of the day. And so I think this sort of strategic, philosophical, very intentional thinking needs to um, be taking place at a senior leadership level. Um, again, when we talked to Kate Obridge um, for the primary her too, because we also interviewed uh, Ben on the back of my um, visit to the school. Um, uh, Kate Obridge talks about, you know, she does it in her, she's uh, across two schools. Um, but she argues that this needs to be either a head teacher, the head teacher or a senior leader who's got the overall picture from early years up to year six, if it's primary school, um, where are these subjects sitting? Uh, what is the, um, how's the subject growing over time? And um, then having those meetings with teachers um, and subject leaders, coordinators uh, for bringing that to life. So it's not something that can be done overnight, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely fundamental to what schools do. I would say beyond safeguarding, it is the thing we do. Uh, safeguarding is non-negotiable, but, um, you know, it, 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 I do get um, I do get quite annoyed with um, senior leaders who say to me, well, we're just a bit worried that some of the resources are a bit tired and, and uh, teachers are using, you know, books they've always used. Well, they might be good books, so that's fine. If you evaluated them, there's no need to change everything. But the onus is on the individual teachers as opposed to it being um, a more strategic piece of work, which for me is the one of the expectations of being a senior leader. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, when when you look at it that way, and actually you you look at children are entitled to these subjects, this is their entitlement. And you you change it into that 
phrase and you you change the terminology. And actually, yeah, curriculum, that is what we do in schools. It is about teaching and learning and the onus should be on the leadership team to filter that down into, you know, into the rest of the team. It's not about, as you say, it's not down to the teachers. Um, it should be the whole fabric of the school because that is what a school is about, is teaching and learning the curriculum. Um, Absolutely. If you've just joined us, we are joined by Mary Myatt, the incredible Mary Myatt, who I love speaking to. I love, love, just love listening to you because as I said, you just seem to simplify everything and make it just sound so easy. And it should be. And that's the thing is it actually should be. And we shouldn't be struggling with this so much in schools as we are. But if you just joined us, we have got Mary Myatt on. If you want to ask any questions about the curriculum um, or have any questions to ask Mary, please do so. Um, we're going to be here until 1230. Um, and so do do join in and join the conversation. Um, I know we've got Nick Corston who'd like to ask you a question in a moment, Mary. So we're going to get him on in just a moment. Um, but but the, the other thing I've been thinking about as you've been talking is you talk about this ambitious curriculum. And I remember in my staff room, I had taken one of the quotes from one of your books. This was before COVID. And then obviously when the staff room collapsed because of COVID and we couldn't go in the staff room, we I took it down. But there was the question, um, you know, are you, are you setting expectations? Are you, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but it was about the fact that are we challenging every single child? Are we setting high enough and ambitious enough curriculum for every single child? And you talk about an ambitious curriculum through sort of everything you talk about. What are what are some of the things that leaders and schools can do to really think about how we set sort of, because I know we set ceilings and we shouldn't be and schools do and we need to get away from this. So how can schools make sure that their curriculum is ambitious for all? Uh, well, there are a number of things. Um, the first is to get short of ability tables. Um, so, and to stop some of the language we use. Um, so I throw a hissy fit when I hear teachers talking about my lowers. They're not your lowers, they're your children. And how would you feel if you're own offspring were referred to as your learners. Um, there's a huge amount of evidence that we rise and produce work to the level of expectations that people have of us, whether we're adults or children. So if someone doesn't expect much of me, I'm not going to put much in, <laughs> frankly. Um, but those um, ability groups, um, I think, are deeply damaging. Um, uh, the children know that the tigers or the cheetahs are the bottom table. You know, you can't kid them. Um, what really worries me is a high proportion of those children on those lower tables have pupil premium funding. And however we determine intelligence or IQ, I refuse to believe it's linked to postcode or parental wealth. So we've got a huge amount to sort of get shot of, I think, in, in, uh, in terms of expectations for children. Um, and even when you're thinking about, you know, early graspers in mathematics or any other subject, they're not early graspers in every aspect of it. So this, um, this sort of blanket, um, you know, high, middle and low, I think is completely dysfunctional. I don't know what a child is capable of until I give them interesting, difficult, demanding work and I support them to get there. 
So that is one thing. The second is um, to um, get a shot of differentiated colored worksheets because those by and large, they widen gaps. And um, we need to be pitching it uh, to above the highest attaining child in the class. And then we, we unpack it and scaffold it primarily through talk. Um, and so I'm not arguing here for pitching things that are, um, you know, children can't grapple with at all. What I'm arguing for is um, a really interesting um, curriculum with fascinating stuff within it that I as a teacher and the mediator for and unpack it with my pupils and students. And we can draw on some of the um, findings from cognitive science to help us here. So one of the things is that it turns out we know more and remember more if we hear things in a story. It's like we kind of know that intuitively. It's kind of common sense. But um, uh, it's, a, it's a huge help when we're on this um, highly uh, interesting offer that we have for children. And so one of the pieces of work that um, I've been working on for a while now, but it's now just come to reality with a free website called the Teacher's Collection, um, where with colleagues um, just mapping stories against the national curriculum with some draft draft planning units i mean keeping it simple what do we want children to know what's some of the big ideas and how are we going to do it can i read them a story <laughs> it's almost too simple to be true um which is why i spend a lot of time talking about it but also into secondary as well so um you know to overcome that bridge we choose um accessible um but demanding uh, texts that are going to reveal the subject so children are going to be talking about it and learning about it. Um, so that's obviously helpful when we want children knowing stuff. It doesn't mean that um, a story-based curriculum is uh, the answer to everything because uh, obviously we want children learning to read maps, we want them um, running around, we want them uh, making things with their hands, but when we're in the content bit of children knowing more, remembering more and understanding more, this can be a really helpful insight. Um, and the second thing that's useful to draw on, uh, which I think uh, can make the curriculum much more manageable, is that we know more and understand more if we uh, understand the big ideas and the concepts. Um, so they're like holding baskets for a lot of information. So if I understand a concept, it means new knowledge related to that concept is going to be much stickier. So currently what we have in too many cases, not in every case, but it's, it's too frequent, is what I call um, uh, a scattergun approach, um, Jackson Pollocking the curriculum through masses and masses of poor quality worksheets stuck into children's books and hoping some of it's going to stick. So dump a load of that because mostly they don't add learning. They're just sort of activities to keep them quiet. Um, and often they're inaccurate and shift instead to high quality texts um, that are going to reveal the knowledge and those big ideas and get children buying into it. Because the final thing to say around a, a challenging offer is that, um, you know, human beings are curious. They want to find out more as long as it's offered in the right way. And so thinking is hard. We know that. That's my job as a teacher is to help my children get through that first hump, that first difficulty. As I say, it's primarily through talk and examples. And then <coughs> we can go into that material in a deep way. So, uh, yeah, those are my thoughts on that.
Yeah, really, really interesting. And it's interesting um, about the ability tables because this, you know, this has been about for a while now in, in one of your, in your earliest books. Um, and actually, you know, doing away with ability tables. And I know a lot of schools who had, who had done this pre-COVID and since COVID have suddenly gone back and almost backstepped into setting children back up into ability, you know, you go into classrooms and you're actually seeing children taken out into their groups um, and, and children in maths grouped into different abilities. And I don't know if, if something's happened during COVID where teachers have, because we've been on Zoom and we're teaching in a different way, that that is almost, they feel the need to do that. I don't know if you've noticed that, Mary, in, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's not, a, that's absolutely not a problem if it's a short-term fix. Yes. Okay, so if we know that children are struggling to subitize or supertize or, um, you know, number bonds and all the rest of it, short, sharp, focused, I yes. guess that is fine. It's when those children get locked in those that's my real worry. And so this is being done really carefully and intentionally. That's not, a, that's absolutely not a problem. Um, but, <coughs> um, you know, for the most part, we need to move away from that as quickly as possible. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean to say that after I've done something like captured my whole class feedback, um, I mostly from what I've noticed in the lesson, but might also be through skimming children's books, that there are a handful of children are still not getting something, whether it's mathematics or something else. I'm going to bring those children together either at the start or at some point of the next lesson and do some intense work with them until they have got it. And then they go back to their tables. Uh, notice I say I, because I don't should always be the teaching assistant. You know, why is it that, you know, the, the children with the greatest needs are always with the least qualified adults now this is not to put teaching assistants down because i rate them really highly but um there is something strange going on in the sector where our most vulnerable children this happens in primary and secondary are with the least experienced at uh, least qualified uh, and in secondary the least experienced quite often people um and it's never a blame game I i'm just asking us all collectively to think hard about what we're doing and why yeah, absolutely. And it is, but it is thinking about the purpose of everything we do and why and why we do it. Um, and that's really, really interesting, you know, because I have spoken to some schools where I think the focus has been on taking those children out for a short, as you say, short, sharp sort of intervention to pick them up to to fill those gaps. But unfortunately, over time, it then becomes this, it becomes the norm. And it is about getting back to what we know works and what we know is the right thing in schools. And I think a lot of actually a lot of a lot of what we know as educators, we've almost lost slightly in COVID. Um, and I think it's about just getting everybody's confidence back that that for me is a theme sort of coming into September is, is we're coming back finally, we hope I say this into a normal year. And it is almost trying to get everybody's confidence back in in actually knowing that we know what the right thing is. We 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 know what our children need. And it's almost just getting back into that brave territory again of we we need to do the things that we know work and are right. Um, so uh, 
ability tables. Yep, absolutely. And all of that. Um, thinking about, I love the, I love what you say about the ambitious curriculum, but thinking about how we pitch everything to above the highest attainer in the class and thinking about how do we then scaffold and support the children to, to be able to engage with that curriculum. And I wonder how many schools do that. Um, I think more and more are thinking carefully about this and implementing it. And one of the great benefits of my work is I have time to think this through and to um, ask colleagues to help me, uh, you know, create these sorts of resources. So just to give you a quick example, you know, if you're thinking um, about science, uh, year six, the programme of study talks about children being taught about the theory of evolution. Now, I can download some resources from a poor quality website, uh, not very good images, poor quality language, um, you know, just just a bit naff, really. Or <laughs> I can use a text like Sabina Davis, um, Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. And I can read that to my class, possibly through a visualizer. Now, what that does, because we choose a high quality text, because I have um, handful of criteria one is the images have got to be exquisite now, i think there's so much junk that lands on children's desks that they don't stick into their books i mean don't get me started about sticking paper onto paper <laughs> and yet we're proclaiming we're eco schools you know i've never met a school yet that spends less than 5k on photocopying that's before you get to print sticks i mean what a waste of time um, most of it most of it is handful of stuff that isn't so um yeah so uh, i want my any book we select has got to um, have wonderful images. Two reasons. One is my children deserve it. They deserve the best. And the second is, is that a high quality image is going to provoke curiosity. So as already going to break the bridge, you know, get over the bridge for wanting to find out more. The second is, is that the tone has got to be good. And what I mean by that is, I want any text speaking to my pupils and students as though they're intelligent human beings. I mean, it doesn't need to be jazzed up with, oh, isn't this exciting? Isn't this wonderful? Isn't it all sparkly? No, it is really interesting stuff. And I want that quality of tone to be there. They do not need to be patronized. And then the third is, I want this lovely rich vocabulary, most of which is conceptual vocabulary. So high quality text like Sabina Radeva's fits all, all those criteria. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out some of that lovely rich vocabulary, geological record, extinct, species, sediment. These are all fundamental to understanding the story of evolution or the, the account of evolution. But it's all coming out of this richness of the text. Um, and then I might put those on a knowledge organiser and, you know, set them for homework, you know, low stakes quizzes and stuff like that. But this is a, um, a much richer shift to taking children into something that's deep without forcing, because it's just so enticing, it's so interesting, they're going to want to go there anyway. Um, and so, um, yeah, I do think there are more schools who are thinking about this, and then this, the website that I've set up, which is um, free to access, is, is growing the books um, that are tightly linked to the content of the national curriculum. And interestingly, because um, uh, I said, you know, I don't think that this applies in mathematics, although we can um, offer things for children for homework, like how many of our children know where zero comes from, for instance? You know, it's like, where does it come from? It's a really interesting story. Find that out and come back and tell us. Um, but uh, the I, I was talking before um, 
half term uh, with a, a primary multi-academy trust in the Midlands. And I said, I think, mm, I'm not sure about mathematics. I think there are opportunities for topic work or, uh, you know, homework, thinking work and finding out work. Um, and actually, the leader of mathematics across this trust said, no, we, we use stories in mathematics as well. So I was very encouraged by that. And there's some great websites, um, uh, math through stories and all sorts of stuff. But actually build that bigger narrative around the, what the subject is, but also takes children into the depth of um, the content that they're learning. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And it is it's it is about creating this rich, you talk about just all, you know, these rich, beautiful texts and the fact that, yeah, you know, our children deserve the best and we need to give them the best. And I think just, just everything you say, Mary, it's just, it makes so much sense. I love it. Um, so I know that Nick Corston's on here and he wants to ask you a question. I think it's going to be regarding creativity in the curriculum um, and about how we inspire our children. So Nick, I know um, he's a dad on a mission to sort of come in and engage with schools on creating creative days. Um, Nick, are you there? Oh, Nick. We'll come back to him if we can get him as a speaker, but I know he wanted to ask a question about creativity in schools um, and about how we engage and inspire children. Um, and what what would you say about this, Mary? So schools doing trips and visits and educational visits. Um, I know since COVID, a lot of schools are trying to get this back into the curriculum. Obviously, COVID stopped a lot that schools were able to do. Um, but what do you say about how we inspire children through, you know, educational visits, using our natural resources around us, the, the area and geography um, for less, geography lessons and things, and how we use our space around us, how we get people to come in and inspire? Um, what are your thoughts around all of that? Oh, yeah, I think I think they're essential and um, they're ways of uh, bringing the curriculum to life, but also providing a stimulus for children to have creative, thoughtful responses to those. Um, interestingly, um, when John Thompson and I were um, preparing and having interviews with colleagues for Primary Hurt, with um, our great co-conspirators, Leica Sharma, Emma Turner um, and Rachel Higginson, um, what we found was, was that when we were talking to um, colleagues in primary, unprompted, many of them would talk about using the local area. Um, and, you know, there's so much richness in every, you know, in, in every community and in every locality that sometimes, you know, we, we become blind to it because, um, you know, it's familiar to us. And so um, it's there in the Geography National Curriculum, the History National Curriculum, but really great to see how so many people were drawing on the local community, not just in those subjects, but in others as well. So local artists, local writers, um, Adam Smith talking about visiting local places of worship in his part of London, um, and then wanting children to be able on the back of that, to be able to go anywhere and be able to read the religious symbols, you know, in the uh, in the National Gallery or whatever, to be truly informed in that sort of deep way and to have thoughtful, creative responses to them. So I think they um, add enormously to um, children's uh, entitlement. Um, the only caveat I would have around them is that 
They're not just seen as kind of wow days that don't go anywhere. Um, you know, schools invest a lot of time and also money in these. And so I'm going to want to extract, you know, the best value from them. And by that, I don't mean children going around with clipboards and, and um, you know, uh, low low quality worksheets. I rather wait they went round with nothing, but I would want them to be properly prepared before they went for the interesting things they're going to see so they can identify them. And then I'm going to want um, to see some uh, really thoughtful responses as a result of the visits they've been on or the people who've been in to visit them. But it's one of the things I've been really impressed with, um, you know, talking with colleagues, the extent to which this wider provision is being taken seriously by schools. And, you know, Times are tough and money is tight and time is tight. But um, people do realise the importance and significance of these. So it's 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 great to see. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing as well that people just need to be reminded about is actually, you know, using your natural space around you can be so simple and it's free as well. And we do exactly as you said, I think we forget what we have around us because it becomes part of what we see every day. Um, but it is such a great learning experience to to the children. Um, I think we have Nick back. So I'm going to very quickly see if we can get him to speak now and if we can hear him because I know he had a question for you. Nick, are you one, there? Two, one, two. Can you hear me? Uh, we can hear you I, now. <laughs> All right, Nick. I, 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 could, I could bore Sorry. you with the details, but my phone's hand-free. Microphone's not working. You can only use spaces in hand-free anyway, enough technology. I'll be honest with you, Mary, I'd actually run out of things to say because you've covered it. What a comprehensive, fantastic conversation. And I mean, every child and artist, children's entitlement, children as humans and not just numbers. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's all about leadership. And, you know, I, I, I call them hashtag brave school leaders, leaders who value and understand creativity. And my, my thoughts really with you are, well, my question really is, what, what opportunities you feel there are for these brave school leaders um, in the curriculum to, to teach both creativity from a subject perspective and to teach creatively from a pedagogy perspective? Because I know things like project-based learning are ways of doing this, but then they're frowned upon and sometimes even demonised. So your thoughts really about, about those two perspectives on creativity, if you, have, if you can. Yes, I think, uh, you know, one of the uh, misconceptions, it seems to me, and do, um, I'm very happy to stand corrected, Nick, is that, you know, creativity has to uh, kind of stand alone as a, as a creative, rather than a way of working. And uh, so for me, it encompasses um, original thinking, original products. And so what I mean by that is, and I'm drawing on Tim Oates here, that, you know, when we're working out whether children have learnt what we intended are they doing it in a way that actually they're bringing them their complete selves to it or are they just parroting back what i've mm. said there's a place for parroting back the factual stuff but actually are they bringing their own lens to it and um so there's there's that element to it and just to go back to flora's point about you know using the local environment another thing that comes from that is that um we we take greater pride in our local areas if it is a source of an object of uh, curiosity and study in inverted commas so just to give you a quick example when i was um, still in school just outside ipswich um, we would um, my background's re we would take the year sevens uh, to the local church we could walk there which was fantastic at, at clayton but in 
not just using it for an RE point of view, but actually um, thinking wider and thinking, you know, what's the history of this? So we bring history colleagues in as well. And then we were lucky enough to have a Henry Moore in there. So you've got, and it was a wonderful Flint, uh, you know, Flint um, walls and, and, and uh, amazing, amazing patterns. Now, just that one resource was the stimulus for all sorts of lateral thinking and insight and generated, you know, masses of ideas and, and creative stuff for children from all those, um, in all those different fields. So I think there's that in terms of mm. uh, the subject content itself. In terms of um, creative uh, pedagogies, and my, my personal view is this things like project-based learning, when they're properly set up, uh, can be incredibly powerful. You've only got to look at schools like um, XP in Doncaster and, and yeah. others as well. Yeah. The issue is, is that, um, you know, if they're not properly understood, they can mm. become a bit flaky, but anything can become flaky. So, um, yeah, the only thing I would say, Nick, is I wouldn't frame it as brave leaders because that's sort of saying we're having to go cult countercultural here, answer, so it's an expectation. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I, 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 I don't know what your <laughs> for doing that. Yeah. Well, let me, let me give you that reason. Funny enough, I, I ran a session in a school in Sunderland five years ago, Steve Williamson there, outstanding school in the most challenged setting. And I said, Steve, how are you doing this? How are you delivering such creativity, subject and pedagogy? He said, Nick, it takes brave school leaders who, who go with, with what they know works. And, and I love the fact that you talked about place, the pride of place. Mick Waters, Professor McWaters said to me a couple of years ago, we were chatting, he said, once upon a time, the curriculum was defined by local needs. So it was very much based on the setting. So in Sunderland, they taught kids to make stained glass and, and build ships. And, and, and so, so for me, a national curriculum, which is cookie cutter fitted for a whole country, how does it reflect Flintstone walls in, in, in Suffolk? And how does it reflect the need to build iron bridges in, in Ironbridge and Shropshire, where I'm from, you know? And, and uh, does the curriculum risk losing that local context, do you think, if we're not careful? All right, so I'd reframe it slightly differently. <laughs> and, and again, I'd reframe it as, 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 entitlement, as entitlement. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, yeah, there's stuff that every child is entitled to know. Otherwise, they're being disadvantaged. And I hate, I hate that phrase, the best of what's been taught and said. It's, it's so cliched. I mean, I'm sure it was original when Arnold <laughs> first said it. But it becomes, um, you know, it just becomes a catch-all. There's tons of interesting stuff out there. And the, the starting point for it, it seems to me, is the national curriculum. Now, in, um, in well, certainly in history and geography, I'd need to go back and look at the others, because actually music and art and design, they're a bit flaky, really. If you look at the national curriculum, I could do, I could do it some more detail, frankly. They're so open um, and not very much written. History is overloaded because um, that's because Michael Gove got his mitts on it. But um, certainly in history and geography, it does talk about the local. And I think we could make more of that. But what we don't want to do is distort it so children don't realise about wider place and, and wider history. But it's a fantastic opportunity, uh, that I think. But I, th I think you're absolutely right. And I think what the most thoughtful leaders are doing is they're saying, well, that's the national curriculum. And then how am I synthesizing the best of that and making it relevant for my pupils and students um, so that their minds are both expanded and their horizons are expanded but they're also recognize the beauty of of where where they actually where they actually live and one school that does well it's a trust that really well is, is reach feltham um, you know they, they really think about that carefully uh, about celebrating the local 
Uh, and that's also local people, local trades, local businesses and all the rest. Of it. I mean, it's a much bigger agenda than that. Um, but there's a there's every possibility for it to be a, a cookie cutter curriculum. But I think that is comes down to lack of imagination and actually lack of uh, obligation to our children having um, something that is more imaginative than that. And it doesn't necessarily mean different content. It means the way that we approach it. So that's my take on it. I love as well, very quickly, Mary, about how, you know, I'm always saying it's not about brave leaders because actually it's not about being brave. It's about doing what we know is, what we know is right for our children. And as you say, it's what our children are entitled to. But you framed it really nicely, which I'm going to start using, thoughtful leaders. It's about actually putting thought into everything we do and, and understanding the purpose of everything we do. And just beautiful. You put everything... I. <laughs> I know I keep saying this, but you put everything so beautifully and so simply and just make it sound just how we should be doing it. And it you make it sound so easy and it should be because that's it. It it should be simplified. Um, if you've just joined us, we are on with Mary Myatt talking about the curriculum. Um, if you have any questions for Mary, please do um, uh, ask and ask to be a speaker and we'll get your questions put forward. Or you can put it in Twitter with at TTR Radio. Um, very quickly, I'm going to just go through very quickly our sponsors for our spaces in TTR. And we have Witherslack Group, who are a leading provider of specialist education and care. They need people People like you to help them achieve even more. At Witherslack, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. Witherslack currently have some fantastic career opportunities available to apply for, so check them out at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. Also, we have the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service, which provides secondary schools with an evidence-based curriculum at Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4. It connects with resources, assessment, next steps in CPD, powered by Oxford Smart Carudal. What makes Oxford Smart different? Well, for the first time, curriculum is seamlessly connected with the resources, assessment, next steps in CPD needed to deliver that curriculum. This curriculum coherence means all components work smoothly together, gathering data to give you the insight you need to plan, teach, assess, and monitor the progress of all your students effectively. As well as providing a personalized and adaptive learning pathway for all your students, Oxford Smart frees up your time to inspire a love of learning in your students and to spark awe and wonder in your classroom. Visit OUP at global.oup.com to find out more. If you've just joined us, we are here with Mary Myatt talking the curriculum. Um, we've got Noreen who would like to ask a question. Noreen, do you want to unmute yourself? You are a speaker. Hi, hi, Mary. Hi, Flora. Lovely program. Hello. You're doing good. Uh, Mary, um, looking at uh, from the point of view of governors, how can governors become thoughtful leaders when they sp speak to executive leaders about curriculum? Oh, that's a great question, Noreen. And hi, and good to <laughs> good to have a chance to chat with you. Um, yeah, I've been giving this a lot of thought recently that um, uh, governors need to have the headlines of uh, what is happening in terms of the curriculum with the, within the school, whether this is primary or secondary. Uh, they need to reassure themselves that pupils and students are getting their full entitlement um, and 
um, asking questions, for instance, if children are withdrawn for good reasons, for catch up, um, is that as focused and as bespoke and having impact as quickly as possible so they're back with their peers? Um, and then there's also um, just having an overview, are all the subjects uh, there in one form or another? It could be in primary, it could be topic, it could be topic based. Um, it could be a number of ways or it could be discrete lessons. So um, governors need to have that overview. And then they also need to know um, how children are getting on. And one of the things that worries me, uh, and I was in a school um, a couple of weeks or so ago, uh, where governors are putting a lot of pressure on the head teacher uh, to have truckloads of data. And so the key stage two um, results have been uh, published for individual schools. We know that they're not being published nationally for individual schools, but we've got headline data for that. And so that was legitimate to talk about, you know, what standards were like. But then they also wanted equivalent data, you know, for children uh, not having taken those tests. Uh, and I said, well, beyond any reading um, tests that you might do every now and then or any external, you know, GL or NFER type of things, it's a non-question. You're just making up numbers. So I think governors have got a big role uh, in terms of um, asking how children are getting on, but tell us without using dodgy data, because internally generated school data is not worth the paper it's written on. And, you know, it's not just me saying that. We've now got Ofsted won't look at it. Why not? Because they've realised it's neither valid nor reliable. And so, um, you know, asking for samples of children's work and maybe on a rotation having, um, which lots of governing bodies are doing, and I think it's really good practice, um, inviting the subject leader or coordinator to come to um, a governing body meeting uh, and talk about the curriculum and show some samples of children's work. So it could be children that they've previously been worried about and now they're doing really well. It could be some children who were doing really well and now they're slacking, so what are we doing about that? So just provide samples because of an the right sort of sample, um, the right sort of evidence can tell a big story. And so we don't need to do it with them. And then over time, governors have got a picture <clears throat> of both the stuff, the content that's being taught, and also um, an impression of how well children are doing. And um, I can tell you the number of governing interviews that I've done um, on inspections where they were not able to do that because they were just pulling up data. And I thought, talk me through what the data means. They're going to tell me. So this false um, impression that spreadsheets give and progress matrices, they're not a thing. And so um, external data, fine, but that doesn't need to take that long. We need to know, governors need to know how things are within within the school in what I'm arguing is quite a light touch yet robust way. So I hope that makes um, sense, Noreen. Perfect sense, Mary. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Noreen, great <laughs> question. So following on from the governor aspect, um, what what would you suggest then if governors were coming around to do subject learning walks and to look around school, what should they be looking for um, regarding curriculum? Yeah, well, thing number one, they're not to be judgmental. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it, uh, and I think, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about tone, attitude, trust. And so um, careful curiosity, um, respectful questioning. So um, uh, what I think is really helpful for governors is to talk to children 
small groups of children about how they're getting on, what they're most proud of, um, when they sh share some of their work in their books or in other formats, because children produce a lot of stuff, not just in books, um, so that they're getting a picture of what a child is experiencing and learning within that subject um, across a number of years. Um, and, you know, I remember this being um, what I experienced when I was in um, teaching in school and the link governor for my subject a um, couple of times a year would come and have a chat with me about how things were going, uh, talk about the curriculum and then would talk to some students. It didn't need any data. She got all the information from that. It was incredibly affirming uh, that. And so this is iterative work over time. We don't try and do it all at once. Um, but it can produce great insights for governors as long as they are light touch. It can't be heavy handed this because you don't get the best out of people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it is, I think, you know, when you talk about those conversations with children, because I know I know speaking to other schools and, and teachers and current teachers, even in, in schools I'm in, um, that their concern is not having the work in the books because there's no evidence. And I think people are still caught up in this whole evidence thing. And actually talking to the children is all the evidence you need. Because if the children can talk to you about what they've been doing, what they've been learning, um, and the richness of the curriculum through what they talk about, surely that's all the evidence you need. Uh, yeah, so I've, I've, I feel really strongly about evidence. Um, and you've described it uh, brilliantly, Flora. Um, but there is this common notion that a lesson hasn't happened unless there's something in children's books. It's like, where did that come from? Who said that learning yeah. happens in every 50 minutes or an hour? And this is um, a real issue that I talk quite a lot about, um, you know, particularly in relation to um, uh, underpinning new units. We want children knowing more, remembering um, more and being able to do more through high quality texts. And it's not just me saying this, you know, you've got Dan Willingham quoting um, uh, research from 2012, Aria and um, Paul's work on storifying the science curriculum. You know, children know more, remember more if the content is put into some form of narrative. Anyway, so why isn't this happening more? Well, it's almost too good to be true because it does all the heavy lifting, basically. Um, another reason why it doesn't happen is because um, if I'm underpinning uh, my lessons with a high quality text, um, how much time have I spent preparing for those lessons? Well, I found a high quality text. My leader's given me time to do that. Um, and I've identified some of the words that I think children might struggle with, I might want to pre-teach, etc. But what I've not done is work till midnight preparing half a dozen differentiated kind of worksheets that are going to widen gaps. So that's an issue, time. And then the other issue is evidence. And so if we're going to spend a lesson or more reading and reading aloud, it means that quite often there won't be evidence in children's books at that point. But the issue here is if you look at the English national curriculum across all, across all key stages, <clears throat> um, writing's number four. I think that's no coincidence after speaking, listening and reading. We want to get great written outcomes. Children need to be fed with the first three. Um, and so this notion of evidence that also if someone comes into my classroom and I'm reading aloud to a class, what does it look as though the children are doing? It doesn't look as though they're doing anything, but it's all happening internally, intellectually. 
and then they won't necessarily write something in that lesson. So we've got to reframe what counts as evidence. Because um, frankly, if a child can't tell me, I haven't taught it. As you say, that is that is the, the biggest evidence. So I think working books is helpful. But what you end up in with, in this rush to get evidence, you just get lots of fragmented Jackson Pollocky stuff just to prove I've taught something. Yeah, but <laughs> it just looks horrible. <laughs> uh, yeah. To build up to a bigger outcome. It could be something like a double eight-page spread. It could be an extended piece of writing. Fantastic. But not all this um, gobbledygook to prove I've I've done something. No, and and exactly as you say, it becomes this fragmented pieces of work, which actually disengages our children from learning altogether because they're having to do things that actually have no purpose. Um, and you talk so much about, so in your books, you talk a lot about this beautiful, you, you make it seem like these, these beautiful projects and these beautiful pieces of work and, and the final outcome of, of projects and things that you want to do. How, how, what advice would you give to schools? So thinking about, let's say I'm just picking something DT, let's say, I know that some schools struggle to, as they say, fit the DT curriculum into the, into their weekly timetable. Um, what, what, what advice would you give to schools about how to create beautiful pieces of work? How do you how do you actually plan the curriculum for DT? Let's say, what advice would you give? So I'll just say a bit about what's informed my thinking around beautiful work because this isn't about aesthetics. I'm not making judgments about no that's no. poor taste or good. It's like is it worthwhile? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Children put a bit of themselves into it. And is it, have they shown that they've generated new learning as a result of what I've taught them? So for me, it, it can be any kind of product. And again, I go back to Tim Oates, who's so helpful on this, that it, it, the impact of what we've taught comes out in children's products. It could be low stakes quizzes. It could be more formal uh, practice tests, although I don't like too many of them because they're not a good thing. Um, it could be an extended piece of writing, but has it been beautifully crafted? And so m- the main drive of my thinking around this is, is Ron Berger's work, The Ethic of Excellence, where children are engaged in something that's worthwhile. This would speak back to Nick's point as well. Um, is it worthwhile? <laughs> is it adding value to, to my uh, cognitive and effective development? And am I proud of it? That's how I would define uh, beautiful work. And it can't be done every lesson. It's something iterative over time. And it also speaks, I think, to the agenda of mastery, where over time, again, it doesn't happen every lesson. Am I taking my children to a place where they can do something on their own terms in a new context as a result of what I've taught them? And so what emerges then is worthwhile, beautiful work. So to come back to the design and technology, um, uh, one of the things we've done this term with my fantastic colleague Rachel Higginson is on the Martin Co site. We we started primary subject networks because we're getting masses of requests of you know can you support this? Can you support them? There's only so much time, so we decided to put them on. They're just over an hour, and uh, they have been amazing, absolutely amazing. You know, spine chillingly fantastic. And then they're recorded so people can watch them afterwards. But when they're live, people can put their questions in. So with the design technology, we had Tom Turnham, and we also had. Um, Tony Ryan from the Design Technology Association because we bring in the subject associations if they're available as well. Now, one of the distinctive things that Tom did, hey, they take it seriously. <laughs> and uh, so we just got to take stuff seriously. If we're going to take it seriously, what does that mean? Uh, so 
you know, are we just going to muck about with a few low quality worksheets or are we going to do something really intentional? And one of the things they do in Tom's, they um, draw on the Design Technology Association. So, for instance, projects on a page are wonderful to get started when we're on this journey. And then um, rather like many schools, um, uh, so um, have art sketchbooks that go through um, that go through. Uh, the children's time in school and those build up over time and I know um, Sarah Larson's on the call and uh, they certainly do beautiful beautiful sketchbooks and and Tom does this with design and technology as well in their in their school so children are amassing this rich catalogue of material iterative work over time which is different from this scrappy work it's like building up to something and then they're very clever in terms of involving local businesses as well. So they had this really smart thing where um, they, they teamed up with a local pizza company. And um, I think it was the year six pupils uh, designed a pizza. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was made up by then. The, uh, the, pizza, com the pizza business made it. Now, of course, that's fantastic for the children because they can see it going out into the real world. It's also very smart for the business because, of course, <laughs> all the families wanted to go and try their kids' pizzas. It's that sort of imaginative stuff. So if we're stuck, where's the starting place? Well, I, I would say the subject associations are the starting point when we're getting going on stuff. Um, it's one of the reasons why we wrote her, huh, both the secondary and the primary, just to be able to read and also watch because those interviews are on Martin Care as well. Uh, what what one person who's kind of got the hang of this because there is so much humility within the sector, people doing marvellous work, but being very modest about it, but saying that's a starting point. We could mix some of that because there's no copyright and good ideas um, and we could adjust some of it as well. So never to start from a blank page, but go to some sources um, of authority as well. And there's lots of websites that can help as well. So I'm trying to wean the sector off um, a number of what I call really poor quality websites that are just not good enough. And so um, on marymart.com under resources um, I, for each of the national curriculum subjects, I've pulled out the main points of the national curriculum uh, before you get to the programmes of study, because the temptation is to go straight to the programmes of study. No, you need the big philosophical picture for the difference this subject is making. And then below that, I've got about at least half a dozen websites that are free to access that again can amplify the equipment. I don't have to create it all from scratch. I just need to know some starting points that have been signposted to me. So I hope that helps in terms of design and technology. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And I think, <coughs> yeah. And I think you also highlight how, how easy it is as well to draw in, you know, the idea of linking with a business, um, like the pizza idea. And, and those are free ideas that actually give the children more purpose in, in the learning that they're doing. Um, and what great purpose is that, you know, the children are designing a pizza, go, they, they then can see it made at the local pizza shop and parents can go, go and have dinner with their families and eat the pizza that the children have designed. I mean, what greater purpose is there? Um, I think that's yeah, fantastic. If you, if you, if we were really smart, because uh, just thinking of family budgets, particularly in these times, you know, I'm I'm sure there'd be a subtle way of using some pupil premium funding so that every every family was able to, you know, do special deals and things. Yeah, what it's amazing. Is this additional stuff? I mean, Tom didn't uh, talk about that, so I don't want to put the onus uh, on him. But I'm always thinking, who might miss out? 
which families yeah. might miss out. And so just thinking imaginatively about how some of that funding uh, could, could be used. Absolutely. And I think that's a, that's, that's a really good point, um, you know, because it's making everything accessible to all children and all families. Um, and I, I, I love the idea, you know, everything, everything you talk about is about thinking through the curriculum with intent. And it is that all, it is that whole intent idea of making everything intentional. Um, and I should have actually clarified exactly what you mean by beautiful work. Yes, it's not aesthetics. It's about actually that intent behind it. It is creating that yeah. purpose and making sure that children feel that purpose behind everything they're doing. Yeah, and I think it does literally link back to the intent when we talk about it in that art and design example. Is every human is not every child in my class an artist? It means that we're much more discerning in terms of the instruments and the resources we use to bring the curriculum alive through implementation. It, it, it does so much when we work in that way. And it doesn't need a spreadsheet, it's just stuff we chat about with colleagues. That's the beautiful thing. But this is the stuff we just talk about with colleagues. <laughs> Pull up a few yeah, forms. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we've got Noreen who wants to ask another question in just a moment. But if you've just joined us, we are here with Mary Myatt, the wonderful, wonderful Mary Myatt, um, talking about the curriculum and talking about intent and making our curriculum intentional, creating it with purpose. Um, if you've just joined us and would like to ask Mary a question, please do. Um, I'm just going to go again with our sponsor, uh, Oxford Smart Curriculum. Uh, the service provides secondary schools with an evidence-based curriculum at Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4, and it connects with resources, assessment, next steps, and CPD, powered by Oxford Smart Caboodle. What makes Oxford Smart different? Well, for the first time, curriculum is seamlessly connected with the resources, assessment, next steps, and CPD needed to deliver that curriculum. This curriculum coherence means all components work smoothly together, gathering data to give you the insight you need to plan, teach, assess, and monitor the progress of all your students effectively. As well as providing a personalized and adaptive learning pathway for all your students, Oxford Smart frees up your time to inspire a love of learning in your students and to spark awe and wonder in your classroom. Visit Oxford University Press at global.oup.com to find out more. If you've just joined us, we are here with Mary Myatt. Noreen, you have a question you would like to ask. Hi, I, not, not a question. I was just, uh, something came into my mind while okay. Mary and you were talking uh, about linking with the uh, businesses. So, and that made me think that that's such a, uh, such a beautiful way to make sure that your curriculum is not only uh, thought through in the subject you're teaching, but throughout the school. So if you're linking with, with uh, a business in your DT, that can link with your career education. Absolutely. Absolutely. It works on so many levels. And, um, you know, my experience of, of working with local businesses, because my sins I picked up during work experience one year because a colleague was ill, um, was they are, um, they're really keen. They're really keen to get involved uh, with schools. And also, it's not just their corporate social responsibility elements that they're playing to there. It's also, they want to, they want to be a good employer. They want to the word to get out that these are good people to work with so i think it can work on good work works on so many levels which is which is lovely so yeah but definitely your point noreen about uh linking to careers as well really helpful absolutely thank you so much for that noreen thank you um 
Okay, so in a lot of what you talk about as well, you talk a lot about these rich texts. And through that, it's about building vocabulary and, and creating a vocabulary rich curriculum. Um, and one of the things that I think I remember reading as well is the idea of because we we actually trialed it at our school right before COVID and we were getting into the swing of it. And then obviously COVID hit and threw everything up into the air. Um, this idea of just giving just for homework um, because we wanted to make homework more purposeful. We were actually just sending texts home. So to, to link in with maybe the science curriculum we were teaching and just sending home these really rich, diverse texts from like National Geographic magazines um, and things that were probably over above what the children could understand some of them and 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 make sense of however it was the idea of building up that rich vocabulary do you want to talk a little bit about that idea and your idea of this vocabulary rich the text rich um and all of that again yes so i think this is slightly different in secondary where yes. i think um you know they can be given stuff to read for homework reassured they're not going to get it all but that's right because we start at the beginning of the next lesson there's some lovely examples from geography and history for instance and also science in that um and then children in primary where they they really might struggle and the issue here is that our oral comprehension listening comprehension is more developed than our visual decoding particularly when we're novice readers and so I would just be mindful that, and you've probably you've probably been um, very sensitive to this, that some children just might struggle completely because they haven't got anyone to read it to them. But I think the principle of giving them stuff that's above their pay grade, reassuring them they're not going to understand it all, um, it, that's the high challenge, and then taking it away with the low threat, reassuring them, um, is a good thing. Um, but I think more generally, the power of the... Um, of, of a high quality text um, does so does so much because it reveals, a, and that's why it has to be a really carefully chosen text because there are plenty out there that's simply not good enough. You know, some some schools using leveled readers, you know, teaching, for instance, you know, Great Fire of London. Why would I use a leveled reader? There's a place for leveled readers, you know, for children reading on their own. But, you know, in this case, it's got to be more sophisticated where they're not going to um, either understand it, be able to read it straight away. But that's right, because I am the mediator. You know, I'm bringing this to life as the teacher. That's my job. Um, and so, you know, the idea of it being above um, the most high achieving, um, high attaining child in that class in that element, because they're not going to be high achieving in everything, or very rarely, um, but we've got to have this idea of stretch for every child, but it has to be done in this very human-centered way, that, and that's why the story is so powerful, because it draws, it draws children in. Um, and in terms of the vocabulary, this is again why I'm looking for the rich vocabulary, is that, uh, I mean, all vocabulary is important, you know, tier one, tier two, but tier three, in particular, unlocks the jewels and the richness of the individual subjects. Um, sometimes they cross-fertilize as well. So, you know, you can have some that would work in uh, uh, geography and in science. They're not always exclusive, but for the most part, they are domain specific. And so 
um, if we want to reveal that landscape to children, then the that rich vocabulary is really important. Now, the great thing is, is it's also quite often conceptual vocabulary. <coughs> we know that the concepts and the big ideas are like the boulders that children are going to bounce into and grapple with across their time in that subject. And they're that so for instance democracy would be one in history migration would be one in um geography <coughs> and um so and they're there in every subject the great thing is there's plenty of them but there aren't too many and so selecting these texts that have got um the subject specific vocabulary is incredibly powerful um the other interesting thing around them is that quite often those uh conceptual words um the tier three vocabulary, they have roots in other languages, quite often Latin and Greek. And we've got another great opportunity here to deepen children's learning in a way that's high challenge, low threat, by um, showing them and then asking them to find out the roots of these words. And so to give a quick example, you know, if we talk to children about what an isosceles triangle is, they can generally tell us. And that's because we're very good at teaching definitions. But how much richer would children's understanding be if they knew that the word isosceles comes from two Greek words, as I'm sure a lot of people on this call know, isos is equal and skeles is legs. So if I know that, um, I've got a bigger mental picture, but I've also got a deeper understanding of what an isosceles triangle is. It also means that when I bump into isobar, isometric and other parts of the curriculum, I've got a clue it's got something to do with equal. So we're skilling children up when we do this work and as i say there's plenty but not too many so it's really uh really helpful um and the schools so that's why it's helpful to pull out these big words from the text as well under knowledge organizers as long as we use them carefully you know they don't just get stuck in kids books and they expect to do them on their own i'm going to use these really intentionally um but what the schools that are working with um doing deep the, not deep it's light touch but it goes deep etymological work um and so setting this as code for homework oh that's an interesting word i wonder where it comes from enough children would come back and tell us and what those schools are saying is it's children with the greatest language deficit that are making the greatest gains in their learning and when they ask them what's going on they say well we really like finding this stuff out blow me down you know children are, human beings are curious you know, all sorts of evidence says that, apart from common sense. You know, Dan Williams done a lot of work on this. Human beings are curious. Um, and then they go on and say things like, it makes us feel clever. It makes us feel clever. And I think it's my job as a teacher to help my pupils and students feel clever. So through this really light touch yet deep way, we're, we're taking children into completely new, deep territories, but also helping them to feel clever, which is which is just fantastic. And they love doing this. Quite often people say to me, oh, it's a bit hard doing this etymological work. And I say, look, we've got children in the sector who are fluent in dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, uh, what is it about dinosaurs? You know, I had to stand corrected with mini mark number one a few weeks ago. I couldn't pronounce one of the dinosaurs that were in the book we were reading. I was trying to get the stress right. He, he corrected me and I said, how do you know that, George? He said, well, Steve Baxter from the Natural History Museum, Grandma. Well, you know, they're doing this at what we've got children in schools doing this as well. Some of those children know George doesn't because I haven't taught him this yet. But um, the, the word dinosaur comes from two Greek words. Dinos is scary and Soros is lizard. If they can do it at four, 
they can do it all the way through. And particularly as it's not overload, we're just doing this with the richest, most powerful ones. It, it really amplifies what, what we're doing. And the great thing is, I've just got to identify them, show the kids how to do it, and then they, they go off and do it. Mm-hmm. And then we might have some low-stakes quizzes around it. You know, it's so not rocket science. It's just sort of spotting opportunities to take children's learning deeper. So, yeah, I feel really strongly about the high-quality language and text. Of course, they get all this talk, they get all this discussion, they get all this, you know, some of the research will be themselves, some of it in class. That is going to affect the quality of their thinking, the quality of their talk, the quality of their um, writing. You know, if I can't, you know, as James Britton said, writing floats on a sea of talk. That's what all this stuff does. It opens up the discussion and the talk. So I hope that's helpful. No, it absolutely is. And I think, you know, you, you, you explained it so well, you know, four-year-olds are talking about dinosaurs and they know all the names of the dinosaurs and exactly how to pronounce them. And it is incredible. Um, and they have such, such deep knowledge about some of these dinosaurs and, and what they ate and where they lived and, and, you know, yes. <laughs> everything. It's, Predator, it's incredible. Predators, yes. Yeah. Extraordinary. But, but I, I think it highlights your point so, so well. And I know we only have we only have about 10 more minutes on this call. And I want to end it by talking about, because you you mentioned him in, in, in your curriculum book, Richard Feynman. And I have to say this because you were talking about his notebooks um, and the way the way that he used notebooks and questioning. And when when I read about him, obviously I'd, I'd I, I knew about him, but I didn't know about him. Um, but when I read about him in your book, I went and did some research, and I've now gone on to watching YouTube channels after YouTube channels because I've really got fascinated with him. And he's actually he said a quote which resonates, I think, really well with what you you talk about with learning. And he said. He says, nobody ever figures out what life is all about, and it doesn't matter. Explore the world. Nearly everything is really interesting if you go into it deeply enough. And he said, study hard what interests you the most in the most undisciplined, irreverent, and original manner possible. And just some... Because I'd read about him in in your book in your curriculum book, I thought I'm going to go research him, and it's incredible actually what I've learned about him. But do you want to talk a little bit about the Feynman notebooks? Because you did, I know you only referred to it, you didn't go into a massive detail about it, but you did refer to it in your curriculum book. Yeah, and I mean he was a genius, and he was a very very um, compelling speaker and teacher as well. So his six brief lessons on physics is fantastic because this is what you find with people who really know their stuff inside out, and he was highly original, uh, Feynman, um, is they know how to communicate without using jargon. And I think it's people who don't really understand their stuff who make it all flowery. It's like, if you cannot simplify it, I think Einstein had something to say on this as well. So a four-year-old can understand it, you don't really, you don't really get it yourself. And, and it takes deep work to do that. It doesn't like trip off the tongue. It takes deep thought reflection to do that. Um, one, what um, Feynman used to do, he used to interrogate himself to the nth degree. What did he not understand about this? So he got this, but what did he not understand? And so, um, he, I, as I understand it, he used to um, write down what he did know and then pose questions about what the gaps might be or to take himself further. Um, but he was highly uh, original. Um, uh, think about it. Again, this idea that, um, you know, we are in an innately curious species 
that we don't need to find the answers to everything. It's the journey that is um, interesting and powerful. That's where the deep learning takes place and, and new insights then come as a result of that process. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's lots to be learned from him and from from other thinkers uh, uh, as as well, particularly in terms of the appropriately high and demanding expectations that we have for children, not in this um, Grad Grindian way, but in this sort of expansive, generous, intellectual way. You know, why wouldn't they be fascinated by this? Well, it will be if we give give them the stuff in the right in the right methods, the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Because anything can become fascinating and children soak it up. They love to explore things. And it's it, especially when you talk about, you know, when children understand the roots of of the words that they're looking at and actually understanding how to break it apart. It, they are fascinated by it when you teach them. And, and yeah. they really are. Yeah. And and just to expand on that a bit, because I see Sonia's um, on the call. I was going to mention it anyway, but this has kind of prompted me is that uh you know, and it links slightly to the deficit model we have of, um, of particularly what's happened, you know, after lockdown. We know that it was dreadful for many children, many families, but it wasn't universally so. Some children absolutely thrived. Um, and the curriculum um, was also pretty imaginative in some respects. I just want to say a bit about, you know, the, the Latin program that Sonia has at her school. It's all about high challenge, low threat. Just fantastic. Um but also the, um, uh, you know, it, so it, the, the modern language, the languages national curriculum is an expectation from key stage two. At Sonia's school, they get taught Latin in key stage one, right? That's and amazing. Spanish, and Spanish in early years, right? Now, um, so one of the things that, this is a classic example of high challenge, low threat, and, ch and children wanted to do stuff. So, um, Sonia can correct me, but my understanding it's come through Birmingham University and the um, Ancient History Department and, and Classics Department. And so they've got this amazing program, Classics for All, um, running through. And that's increasingly popular, I'm delighted to say, because that was my first discipline. But then they were asked during lockdown whether some of their year six pupils wanted to take um, a, a course in Greek, ancient Greek. So, of course, <laughs> Sonia and her colleagues, being the sort of people they are, well, yes, of course they would. So, of course, they're year six kids and are then learning Greek. This is all in lockdown. And what's interesting about that, because, um, you know, they're both pretty demanding. There's a, you, there's a beautiful logic underpinning both of them as well. But um, Sonia reports how the older pupils, the older siblings, <laughs> the youngsters who are learning Latin, they've, they've had Latin going for about four or five years, I think. So the older siblings say, well, why didn't we get this? So kind of word spreads when children are getting really interesting, difficult, demanding stuff too. There's deep joy in engaging with this stuff in a context that's high challenge, low threat, and for the most part is mediated through stories. It's simples. It's absolutely simples. So there we go. It is. <laughs> Sonia, Sonia might want to uh, challenge me on some of that. I think I've, I've got the headlines of that right. <laughs> Wow. So if anyone's interested in any of that, get in touch with Sonia, who is on on this space at the moment. That's brilliant. Um, but yeah, it just shows that children will engage with with things that I think we often think they won't engage with. And it's about actually giving, you know, really thinking and putting thought, as you say, it's about that thoughtful and intentional curriculum and really, really thinking about what we're trying to get our children to achieve, but what we're trying to open their eyes to as well. Um, 
I've got a question here, Mary. Um, I know we have literally got five minutes, but Elizabeth Hutchinson has posed a question for you. It says, "Fascinated, fascinating listening to you this morning, Mary Myatt. Children are inherently curious. Would love to ask what Mary's opinion of school libraries within curriculum planning is. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, school libraries are central. Yeah, there's some great work going on with the School Library Association, uh, yeah. And I know funds are tight, uh, but, you know, got to get our priorities right. Chop, chop the photocopying budget. You know, most of it is potty, absolutely bonkers stuff. Put that money into books. So, yeah, I think libraries are incredibly, um, incredibly important. Um, and also, uh, you know, the, 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 the schools that are doing the best work around the libraries, they are... Um, you know, directing children to stuff they wouldn't necessarily have um, approached themselves, but they're also uh, making sure they're appropriately diverse and that uh, those are spread through the curriculum rather than just being the diverse shelf. <laughs> you know, really, really embedding really thoughtful stuff uh, as well. So yes, definitely with you on on libraries. Yeah. But again, you've used the word thoughtful, and I think this is a really a, a massive theme that everyone needs to get across is, you know, curriculum planning. It's not about just throwing it together. It's about really thinking it through, having that intent from the beginning. Yeah. And I, what I would say, so we, we can't rush it. This is iterative. That's why John and I, well, John came up with the idea of her. Her is the Egyptian god of everlasting things, of creativity, of regeneration. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant way of thinking about the curriculum. Nobody's where they want to be. I'm not where I want to be. Some of the stuff I've done in the past has been a bit naff. Some of it still is. Do you know what? It doesn't matter. Nobody dies. We just change it. But this idea we've got to do this crash course and getting everything in straight away, it's much better to do things in, in a thoughtful, iterative way. And the final thing I would say in relation to that is, um, is um, Jerome Brunner's idea, which he wrote in, in the late 1960s, the curriculum is first and foremost for the teacher. If the teacher is not moved and stimulated by what they're teaching, how are they going to convey that to the children? So for me, again, that comes back to this leadership element of that. Are we providing opportunities for our colleagues to have the chance to engage in some of this beautiful stuff so that then they can convey it to children? And so... Um, yeah, I just think it's such an exciting space to be, but we have to breathe into it. We have to cut ourselves some slack because the pace needs to be measured over time. Uh, and, and there are always going to be bits that we'd like to have better. There might be some bits that, are, you know, not very good at all. Doesn't matter. Children are not going to die. Just have a plan for doing them at some point down the road. So I hope that helps. <laughs> No, it absolutely does. I think it is. It's about the pace with which we're doing it, because I think people throw it into place thinking that Ofsted needs it. And and they're missing the point, because actually the curriculum is exactly what you've just said. It's about passionate teachers, because I always say passionate teachers create passionate children. Um, if you've got passionate teachers, passionate about what they're teaching about, you will engage your learners in a way that you won't if, if, if you know, with a teacher up there who's not passionate about what they're teaching. Um, and yeah, it's about... I would add passionate and knowledgeable. Yeah. Knowledgeable, Cause, yeah. Uh, yeah, because I always think when we just talk about passion, I always think Hitler was pretty passionate. It's like, uh, we've got to have values <laughs> underpinning that. So I'm not trying to... I'm not trying no, to train no. on your parade. Um, no. Yeah, they, need you, but they need to know some stuff as well. They, they absolutely do. Yes. No, I completely agree with that. Yes. <laughs> Passionate and knowledgeable. Very knowledgeable. Um, 
And I think one of the things as well that you mentioned is about adapting. And I think schools need to know that once you've got your, once you think you have your curriculum in place, you actually, it should be adapting and changing all the time based on the children, based on, on what's going on around in the world and things like that. Um, and, and that's what you've said. You've said, you know, adapting and changing um, because yeah. that's what I it's about. It's in this slow and measured way, unless something's disastrously wrong, it's just like we just make a note and 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 change it for for the next time and particularly in discussion with colleagues uh in fact there's a great colleague of uh john thompson's at the huntington school um who does this with design technology they just have the whole schema on a on a on a large piece of wallpaper backing wallpaper and they just annotate what went well and what didn't and then they just take it down and adjust it for next time so it can be done this really light touch way as well yeah, which is brilliant, which is, which is actually, it, that is how it should be. And it's, it's again, going back to those words, intentional, purposeful, and really just thinking about it, being thoughtful about everything you do. Thank you, Mary, so much. Again, I love listening to you. And again, you've made me rethink everything, not rethink everything, but just think about everything again in a thoughtful way, <laughs> um, which is brilliant, you know, thinking about September. And I know everyone listening will be thinking about September, thinking about what they're going into in September and and thinking about the curriculum. So this has been a great, great topic to, to think about and a great topic to discuss and debate. So thank you so much, Murray, for being on today and spending your Saturday morning with us on the Saturday Social. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Flora, and for the colleagues who've joined. Just brilliant. Yeah, Thank you there. absolutely. Thank you all so much for listening. And as ever, the wonderful Mary Myatt, and she's got her new, The I haven't actually read any of your new ones, the primary, huh? You've got three of them out, don't you? Uh, yes, the secondary, and then two primary, and then two primaries. Uh, John and I are working on alternative provision and SEND next as well. So we'll have covered all parts of the sector. Lovely, it's joyful work, yeah. Wonderful. So yeah, absolutely. So look into those books and get them and have a read of them and begin thinking and thinking and designing your curriculum. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you everyone for listening and go have a wonderful Saturday today. And thanks so much for listening to Teachers Talk Radio with us. Take care, everyone, and have a great weekend. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.